What do you call someone thrown out of a bar in Prague? Um, I'm not sure where Prague is. Wait, let me tell you. No. <laughs> a bounced check. Oh. <laughs> C-Z-E-C-H. Now I know. Yeah, there you go. All right. <laughs> that that was actually sent in from uh, Chuck O'Halloran. O'Halloran. That that made me giggle, so it had to go in. <laughs> We've actually had problems with figuring out where Prague was before an episode. <laughs> <We did. laughs> that's, that's why I made the joke that, like, oh, let me yeah. tell you. But yeah. then I was like, oh, wait, no, I, I still don't know. Oh, man. I just want to point out for uh, international listeners that we are actually in the upper tiers of geography understanding for our country. So while uh, you may think we're idiots, <laughs> we're actually in like probably the top 5% for geography <laughs> knowledge for Americans. So oh, That's amazing. <laughs> I know where all the major continents are. <laughs> I might know how many there are. Oh, nice. All right. You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 60. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. And with that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. All right, so first up, a bit of news. I want to say a big thank you to the reviewers. We can't actually look up our Stitcher reviews right now. Uh, the site's down. But uh, for iTunes, we've got Elictman. Elictman? That's it. Andreas Risberg. Uh, I'm pretty sure I best I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize in advance. Chris B777. Martin Rocket. Hegel. Uh, Ashi Larry. T. Zuza1985. Lacathorn. And basically, Steve. Sorry about all that. Those are pretty good. I, I think he did. I think he did an admirable, admirable job there. The one time oh, I could you. say the Stitcher reviews easily, <laughs> Joe takes oh, it from man. me. <laughs> I did. Yeah, it's got your name and everything. I apologize. Yeah, they're down for like what? You said like seven or eight hours now, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it was seven hours with last check. So by now, it's probably like eight hours that it's been down. So if you're listening to this on Stitcher, we're sorry that you missed that on your commute today because that was probably rough. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we've got the full show notes available on codingboss.net slash episode 60. Yep. So with a little bit of news, um, there are certain things that you want to buy that really bother you. Like you just can't get enough time in the store. Like a laptop is a perfect example. So I've kind of, I, I need to upgrade. I have a 2011 MacBook Pro and it's been a really good machine. It's, it's getting a little long in the tooth now and things are starting to run a little bit slower on it. So I was like, you know what? I, I want to start looking. The equivalent of mine in today's price is about $2,800. And I'm not a huge fan of the touch bar and the keyboard feels atrocious to me. Some people say that you get used to it, but it, it just, I, I can't stand it. And 2,800. Oh, cause it's got the new butterfly switches. Yeah, dude, they, they don't feel like chiclets anymore. Like mm. that amazing feel on, on our MacBooks, it's gone. It's, it's a really dead sort of feeling, but people say you get used to it, but still 2,800 bucks is a hard pill to swallow for something that you cannot upgrade. You can't swap out anything in it. So I'm kind of like, man, 
So I started looking at some two-in-one convertibles because I was like, you know what? I don't want to carry around an iPad. I don't really care for one, but I would like something that I can flip around and use, you know, like as, as a tablet when I'm, you know, just kind of sitting there and want to read on the couch or something. Well, there were two I've had my eyes on. One's the HP Spectre X360 15-inch, and the other is the Lenovo Mix 720, both convertibles, both pretty amazing devices. And I went to play with them in the store, and the HP was out on repair because somebody dropped it and broke the screen on it. And the Lenovo was sitting there, and I was like, man, I, I can't just buy one of these things and not know what it's going to fit. So I got them both. <laughs> so... <laughs> So the plan is though, I, I have like 14 days to to use them with the return policy and all that. So I'm hoping to make a decision between one or two of them and take the other one back. But if I don't love either one of them all that much, then I'll just take them both back. And but but the gist of it here is I'm doing all this. I will post some reviews. I'm going to create some YouTube videos on each one of these. I'll do them individually and then I'll compare them both because I'm actually treating this as a developer machine that I'll use as a secondary, like, you know, kind of browsing device as well. Now, in fairness though, on these, you can replace the the hard drive. You can. But not the memory. You can. Oh, really? Yeah. So in the Lenovo, it ships with an eight gig chip. Mm-hmm. in one slot and then you can fill up the other slot if you want if, okay. if it didn't come with it so both the ones that i've got are pretty massively spec'd out the uh, wait no i thought they both had 16 gigs of ram they do they do oh, okay. so base configuration oh. so in the lenovo you you actually can access the memory on both of them and you can access the ssds which are both m.2 ssds and they're both the faster ones so uh yeah, I mean, they're both highly spec machines. They're both core, uh, or they're both i7s. They both have 512 gig SSDs. They both have 16 gigs of RAM. The primary differences between them, other than aesthetics and feel and all that, is the guts. The Lenovo Mix 720 is the first, as far as I know, convertible that has one of the higher-end GTX NVIDIA graphics cards in it. It has a 1050 with 2 gigs of RAM. So it can actually do some decent, video processing type stuff. Um, the And it has a quad-core i7. The HP, on the other hand, has a dual-core i7, and it's running... It does have a dedicated GPU, but it's the 940MX, so it's way less powerful. Still better than the built-in Intel Iris stuff, but, you know, the way I'm looking at it is if I wanted to use this thing for video editing, you know, awesome. I could I could throw on Adobe Premiere and do that, leverage the, GT, uh, the GPU, um, or if I want to use it for development, I can do that. Or if I want to kick back and just do some browsing or watching some Netflix or whatever, you know, it's, it's like the perfect all in one, I, I think for a developer. So, so it sounds like you already talked yourself into the yoga then, man. It, I mean, based off of your comment, you just said about being able to use the GPU to do any video editing. Well, the, the 940 also has CUDA cores in it. So it, it will in theory be able to do it. It's just not going to be as fast. So right. I mean, there's going to be a lot of things that come into play here. And the other thing that I mean, I really- let's, let's get down to brass tacks here. Hold on. Let me stop you right there. Cause, right. cause this is what it ultimately comes down to. You have one machine that on paper, the specs of it are amazing. Yep. And then you have one machine that when you set it on top of paper, it looks amazing. Yep. <laughs> That's really what it is. It, Cause that HP <sighs> looks good gorgeous it's it's every bit as nice as oh dude it's every bit as nice as any apple product you've ever held it's uh, it might even be prettier 
right? It, it, it it's looks gorgeous. amazing. It's gorgeous. Like it, it's straight up. It, and to see pictures Which, of it, it's the HP Spectre, S-P-E-C-T-R-E, X360. And you'll want to make sure you're looking at the newest one. It, you'll know in the picture if it has a stylus in the picture with it. It's gorgeous, dude. It's 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 almost like a bronze look to it. it it's amazing. And it feels great. Like the keyboard on it is, I just, it feels great. Like it, it's similar to my MacBook Pro, which I love the keyboard on this thing. It, it feels like the uh, the Surface, um, uh, not Surface, uh, the Microsoft Ergo, Sculpt Ergo. Like it has that feel to it. Uh, again, I'm going to hold on my total review because I, I'm literally taking one night. I'll use one for the evening. Then the next day I'll switch to the other one. So I'm trying to give them both a fair shake. He's already decided, man, <laughs> it, it's, it's difficult, but they're both, they're both excellent machines. Like, and here's the kicker. So Joe, this is the part that absolutely killed me. So I mentioned that the MacBook is 2,800 bucks for the model. I want basically the same specs, the i7, the 16 gigs of RAM, the 512 SSD. I bought both of these for that same price. Yeah. I was thinking both of them. That's ridiculous. Um, I will say the one thing that I would do if I bought these, because I, I tried to use Visual Studio 2017 with the Docker stuff. You can't do Docker, Windows Docker on Windows Home. Mm. You have to install the Docker toolkit and it doesn't work the same. So I would totally wipe it, install Windows Pro and do that. But yeah, so I do want to approach this from, from the developer standpoint, from the value standpoint for the hardware that you're getting, all that. So we will have some reviews up on our Coding Blocks YouTube channel here in the very near future. And like I said, I, I plan on having three, one for each of them and then one comparing the two. And then, you know, ultimately what my decision would be. He's going to be right. Man, it's, it's hard to argue with specs, but dude, the feel of that HP is is... Like I said, it is every bit as good. I'm not even, uh, I can't stress to you how nice that thing is. I mean, Mike even picked it up. He was like, wow. Let me tell you why he's going to pick the yoga. Because that yoga, the spec, those specs are going to matter. They do. And if you're talking about like buying this one laptop and then keeping it for, you know, some period of time, that period of time is going to be longer on the yoga than it's going to be on the HP. I'll tell you one thing that kind of detracts from that a little bit, though. That quad core generates a little bit more heat, so the fans kick in a little bit more, and you notice that a little bit more. It's not the huge, it's not the biggest thing ever, but that GTX also, that 1050, it can put out some heat. So depending on what you're doing, like, I mean, it, it's definitely an never interesting let thing. fans may be the deciding choice. As, as much as <laughs> Apple liked to talk about how they've redesigned fans oh, yeah. on the MacBook Pro They're so as a selling point, I've never once considered that as... I guess you'd have to have like a really obnoxious fan you would. to I consider it. I will say this. If you took the guts, that i7 and the GTX, out of that one, there's no question you All would right. get the HP. If you could put those, if you could transfer those two components mm. over, it's not even a question because that HP is just the build quality on it and the fit and finish is just gorgeous. Right. So, Yeah, it is a very nice machine to look at. No it's doubt It's funny to think that. like just a couple of years ago, you know, we, we all kind of came down the side of, of MacBook Pros. And just with a few little changes, it seems like everyone's kind of abandoning them in droves, at least talking about it. Yeah, yeah but so, I mean, they uh, changed like the one thing that was, uh, okay, 
go back to the early days of iPhone, right? What was one of the things that was touted as being the critical success of the iPhone was the fact that they got the keyboard right on the iPhone, right? Mm. Here's the company that you would think they should have learned, right? They should have known better than anyone else, right? Input matters. And then, and then, you know, what's the number one thing that Alan didn't like about the new one? The keyboard, the, the keyboard. feel of it. Yeah, right? I'll be honest. Like I, the Touch Bar, I, I've I've really come down hard on it before I'd even really used it. I didn't hate it. Like it, it, it wasn't as polarizing a user experience as what I thought it would be. Like you definitely lose that touch feel. But I didn't hate it. Like it, it looks like it has some uses and it's got some utility. However, it's not a selling point for me. Like yeah. it, it's not it's not a feature that I really care about. It's not going to tip the balance one way or the other. But that keyboard feels horrible. Without knowing how that would work in boot camp, though, I really have a hard time saying that. Like, because I feel like it's I, my gut says it's probably not a great experience in boot camp. Yeah, you probably have to have it default to just that top row of function keys that you would typically expect, right? It depends on what their support is right. for the driver, the touch bar driver in boot camp, right? Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, I wanted to throw it out there. I know a lot of a lot of people are constantly looking for, hey, what's a good laptop to do for this or whatever, and and I think these are kind of the best of all. And oh, by the way, that's an expensive proposition that we're talking about that too. Like to try that touch bar in boot camp, right? To even just to try it, you're talking about <laughs> spending a good chunk of cash just to see like, oh, how does this thing work? Oh, I hate it. Well, now guess what I'm stuck with? Right, because not only you have the hardware, but you also got to pay for a version of Windows, install that. Like, yeah, yeah, but I mean, I feel like the cost of a license of Windows is like the least of your concerns at well, that at point. At that point, yeah, you're just pushing up past three grand. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's kind of ludicrous what it's getting to. I mean, a, a license for Windows Home these days is like what? Uh, maybe 130? It's 100 bucks, yeah. A little over. On, you know, if you go, go shopping for it on Amazon. Yep. So is there a restocking fee for these guys? No. So that's interesting. And, and I don't want anybody to think that I'm trying to abuse the system or, or buck the system or it's anything. totally abusing the system. Oh, it, but like... How else can you really know? So so that's the thing. That's... that's. Oh, man. It, I could totally parallel this to getting married. Wait, what? <laughs> like, like That was random. Like, you know, religion dictates that you can't live with the person or whatever. Man, you can't marry somebody you haven't woke up next to one day, right? Like, you don't know what that's going to be. So like. wait a minute, what was the other wife like? Because you're <laughs> suggesting that you married two wives, so uh, you're like, one of you I'm going to keep. Oh, boy. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah. So anyways, oh. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I agree. It's it's that whole thing, like, when you, if it's a $50 thing, whatever, you buy it and you're like, okay, I didn't like it, That I'll get another mouse, right? But when you're talking about a laptop, like, you're looking at over $1,000. You don't want to buy something that you're going to hate. So... Best Buy actually has a return policy that if you bring it back within 14 days in the original box with all the original stuff, that's it. You bring it back. That's it. I was thinking like I would pay a restocking fee. Like if, if they even just let me rental, like just flat out like laptop rentals, I would love to do that to really try some of these things out. Yeah, get your hands on something. I mean, I, I was kind of just curious if the two-in-one would even be something that I would like, and I was shocked that I like it more than I expected. Are you going to take it back with Ubuntu installed? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm trying to be really good and try and keep it as close to, you know, bare bone stock. Although I have installed Visual Studio. I've installed a bunch of Adobe stuff. I've installed, uh, you know, a, a lot of things. I've got Docker running on one of them. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to get wiped before I take it back. But, you know, it, it's definitely an interesting thing. So uh, it, updates to come.
Yeah, let us know. Well, so it wouldn't be a, a topic without talking about Git, right? So Microsoft uh, released an article about the largest Git repo on the planet, right? Uh, I think we recently talked about their effort to improve the scalability of Git, and they were going to introduce uh, GVFS, which was going to be a virtual file system for Git. And so they posted some of their their findings on this, and like it's awesome to to see this thing. Uh, we'll have a link to the to the article, but just to keep this thing in check, like what we're talking about is we're talking about imagine a repository where just alone in it, okay, you have 3.5 million files in it, okay? The files alone are over 300 gig just before you include, introduce any kind of change history on top of that, right? And now imagine you have 4,000 developers or engineers working in that thing regularly, okay? We're talking about massive scalability problems here. They were saying that uh, when they when they first started to when they first tried to make their uh, migration to Git, uh, the, you would issue a command and it would be anywhere from thirty minutes to hours before it would respond, just due to the massive size of the uh, the repository that they have here. I'm trying to find the specific one. Um, dang it, but I can't find it now. So, um, but they did they did have put out some good metrics though. Like now that they have added in uh GVSFS to it, they've said that now it's like for some command for the, some of those same commands that used to take 30 minutes to hours, it's like 20 seconds now, which is still, wow. you know, they admit that's not, you know, the most, you know, that's not, that's not great. Um, you know, if, if you're the guy who's like issuing that command and you're like, oh, let me wait 20 seconds before I can issue another one. Right. But, you know, down from hours, that's awesome, right? So here's some of the metrics that they have going on, right? So, they, so they've been using this thing for four months. 250,000 reachable commits, all right? Wow. They're getting over 8,400 pushes a day on average. On average, all right? 2,500 wow. pull requests with over 6000 with over 6600 reviewers per workday on average 2500 pull requests have you seen a you, we've all had merge conflicts imagine 2500 yeah. pull requests a day over like almost 4400 branches inside There's of this repository There's only 8600 seconds in a day that's like <laughs> pull requests every 4 seconds that's yeah. insane and then they have over 1,700 official builds per day off of this repository. And there was another number that they had in this article where they were quoting, like, that's just the official builds. So if you, if, for those that use Visual Studio Team Services, you might have noticed this, or if you haven't, you'll be uh, happy to learn this, that uh, Visual Studio Team Services introduced a feature a while back where when you submit a pull request, part of the build automation can be that the pull request cannot be merged in until it passes a build and passes uh, you know, unit testing. So they mentioned that 1,700 official builds per day did not include the, the 
pull request validation builds. Wow. Well, that's what they were calling them, pull request validation builds. That's not included. There were thousands of those uh, pull request validation builds that aren't included in that. So, I mean, we're talking about like massive scale of this repository that's happening here. So, you know, it's only, hopefully it's only going to get better. And anyone who's looked into uh, mono repo type solutions, especially at scale, Google had an amazing uh, presentation um, I can't remember the, the name of the woman that gave the presentation, but she gave a, uh, an amazing presentation on um, the scale of Google and, and trying to solve, uh, you know, their type of developer environment problems that they have. And, you know, now that with the introduction of, of uh, GVFS, it's only going to get better, right, to continue using Git in these environments. So I'll include the link. There's some amazing numbers in this thing, though. It's a really neat article. That's super cool. That really is. Yeah, and um, actually, you just reminded me of something. Uh, I went to a, a recent meetup, and um, one of the developers was talking about moving from code for, uh, from Perforce to Git and trying to figure out if it was worth keeping a history. And he said, you know, I think we're probably just going to ditch it because it's just not that important to us right now. And I, I told him that he should consider having a national – well, it's not national. He should consider having a code forgiveness day. So it's like if you decide we're going to move to a new source control – and we're not gonna we're not gonna track the history. You should give people a couple days, maybe a week, to just do whatever they want, and just just let it happen. It's like the purge, right? <laughs> now I started thinking like, what would I check in if I knew no one could ever trace it back to me? Like, you <laughs> could hide some comments. <laughs> you could like fix something you've always wanted to fix. Bad. You guys think this is a terrible idea? <laughs> It's it's a crazy idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, why? I guess I kind of got hung up though on like why you wouldn't want to include the um, the history there though. Yeah, just because it doesn't always transfer very well. Like uh, mm. okay. that's it. I, you know, I know there are tools and stuff that you could do it, but it's just you know, it, it definitely is a hassle. And sometimes things come across weird, especially if you try to keep like branches and stuff. You know, so there's something nice about the idea of just starting over. Yeah, I agree with that. That's uh, so you modeled this after after the uh, email debt forgiveness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was thinking about reply all the the uh, national email forgiveness day. I think it's in April where you can respond to any email on that day, no matter how late and how long you've been putting it off, and like no one can say anything. You just get it for free. Yeah, that's excellent. <laughs> all right. So the last one that we had in the news, this actually came up from a dinner conversation that. Outlaw myself had is Uh-oh. I had said a while yeah, I had said about something that I had done it quick and dirty like <clears throat> one of the things that I had put in our code base was quick and dirty and and you brought up a question I don't I don't even remember how you phrased it you know I I, I just remember phrasing it like so you said you did this thing and it was and uh, you did this thing and at the time you said that you did it it was quick and dirty and there were two words that in this explanation that you gave of this thing that that like sat with me quick and dirty. <laughs> I think I say beep and beep. <laughs> so it, it's funny. It brought up the topic of if it's quick, is it good? Like if you did it quickly, that, that sort of implies good. Maybe, maybe it doesn't, maybe it does, but usually if you can get it in there quickly, that that might mean that it wasn't too terrible. And the dirty parts are one that scares you, right? You're about to say, 
No, I was going to say the opposite. I was going to say I do quick and dirty stuff all the time and I don't feel bad because <laughs> quick and dirty is better than correct or perfect and never done. That's that's a right? great point, actually. So And there's all sorts of things. It's like, oh, man, I really should refactor this stuff. I can extract this stuff to separate costs. It's like, that's going to take me, you know, three days of work. And uh, this is, you know, something I need to get done today. And it's just not that important. Yeah, totally. Joe just made me feel a lot better about my code. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> So I mean that that's kind of what happened with the the situation we were talking about was the quick part was you know I didn't spend a lot of time you know trying to make sure that every single edge piece of it needed to be done right like I, I just I got in what needed to happen the dirty part is there were some things because of the way it was designed to where I sort of had to fake some other garbage to make it work properly but. Ultimately, I feel like we are trying to step towards a better situation, right? Like taking this one step in this direction, set up the path to where further down the road, we can iterate on a little bit more. And and the code wasn't terrible. You know, the, the approach wasn't terrible, but there's definitely some, some things that were left undone. And so that was kind of the dirty part, right? Like you can't just go in and, and this is going to be something that's beautiful and easy to do through the UI. It doesn't exist yet. So it just brought up the topic of sometimes it's worth taking those steps, not doing it perfectly to your point and getting it in place, laying the path out so that the next step's not so hard to take. Right. And then the one after that can help, help build upon it. And and so that's kind of the path that was taken and it's not always an easy choice, right? Like sometimes you're like, man, I don't really want to go down this road because I know it's undone. It's not finished but at least it sets us up for some future success. Right. And it works for right now. So that that's, I thought that was an interesting thing. I guess the part that kind of like threw me though, was that I was like, well, if it's quick, then that's better. Right. The fact, the fact that you're able to get something to market faster automatically means that that's better. Right. Sometimes it's more agile. It, it's more agile, but it might not be as, developer friendly, right? Like in the thing that I did, I basically borrowed a piece of, of a system and I made it work somewhere else where it wasn't really intended to work. Right. So I kind of had to adapt it and that was the quick and no, that was the dirty. That was the dirty. The quick is that you reused something. I got it done quickly. Right. But yeah, the dirty was, I had to sort of adapt it without filling in all the pieces. So yes, but people that come in and see that code where it was done, they're not going to totally understand it unless they knew that other part of the system, right? So I don't know. The quick part, I don't know if that necessarily strikes a good thing internally when I hear it or, or bad. I don't know if warning bells go off or, or what happens. I feel like most managers I've worked with, like if you come back to them and say, I can do this checkbox in an hour or... I can do this checkbox in three weeks and it's or not three weeks, like say three days and it's going to be much better, much more resilient, much more maintainable and sets us up for future success. Like every manager in the world is going to say, do one hour. And if we need all that other stuff you're talking about over, it could be a problem. We can revisit. Yeah. That's, that is almost always the path that's taken. But now you multiply that by a thousand tickets and you're uh, up the Creek without a paddle. And that's the problem, right? Like you can't, you can't, as as some people put it, you can't kick that can down the road every single time because when you finally catch up to that pile of cans, it's insurmountable, right? 
It, yep. And that's the problem. Like you can you can do that sometimes, but well, there there are definitely times that you need to not kick that can down the road and at least try and address certain aspects of of whatever the problem was. Maybe not maybe not make it perfect, but at least get some of it done. But let let's put let's call this can what it is though, because like you're kind of implying that this thing is te- this can is technical debt, right? But it it might not actually be technical debt just because you like did it in a dirty way. Agreed, or, agreed. Yeah, it might not be. Uh, I mean, let's say that that like check if bo- you don't have an interface to, I'm trying to think. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, you're good. And just because like you don't have an interface in say like a um, another part of your UI that allows you to edit or manage something else, that doesn't necessarily mean that because you added in this new feature, it's. Uh, it's automatically dirty. No, agreed, agreed. That's that's a really good point. Just because something was the one-hour approach doesn't mean it was the bad approach, right? It it could have very well been the perfect approach for what was needed, and it may never need to be revisited. But however, that checkbox might be something that you had planned on putting in 20 different places in your app, and instead of having a reusable component now, you basically have to copy and paste that code everywhere in a one-hour change, right? And then if anything ever needs to change, you now have 20 places you have to update. So those are the kind of things you have taken into consideration. Do you, are you ever going to need it in 20 places? You don't know, right? Today's story is you need it in one, but tomorrow's story might be that it gets added to 20 or it may never happen. It, it, it's, I mean, we talk about the MVP a lot though, but now we're talking about, we're it's almost like we're talking about the MVP, but on a much more uh, micro scale, right? Cause now we're not talking about the MVP as it being the entire application but we're talking about it as being like a feature right a, a small component. a small new feature component whatever you want to call it like that yep you know just getting that thing out yeah and you know we think about the, um, the windows uh git repo that we talked about like i don't think they're kicking many cans you know some things yes but when you've got a project that it gets to a certain point like there's no room for people to be doing that kind of stuff and so you know your, your situation is a little bit different if we're talking about say like a startup or a new product or something where you've got some room to, to take on debt, then I think that's a different scenario. And so it really doesn't matter what situation you're in. Yeah, fully agree. I mean, Git's a little bit, it's been around for a while, right? And what they were trying to do was enable mass scale on it. Oh, which by the way, this is, this is completely uh, going back to something that you said that maybe we discuss in a later episode, but the whole concept of a mono repo versus, you know, uh, multiple repos. I think that's worth bringing up because there's a lot of pain points that we've experienced and might be helpful to share and maybe even get some feedback on. So we'll talk about that in a later one because we don't have any time slotted for it for tonight, but uh, something interesting. So I think with that, let's jump back into sort of what we started, not last episode, but the one before. Yeah, episode 58. Yep, episode 58. We we started in on domain-driven design, and it's a huge topic. And what we want to do is we still want to continue going through the overview. And and at some point, we will jump down into the weeds. But like I even already answered some questions on the episode uh, 58 comment section down at the bottom where, you know, just being introduced to this topic, there's so much information and it, and it will kick off so many thoughts in your head. Like, well, how would you do this? Or how do you handle that? Or does this mean I'm going to create a bunch of classes to do this? And, and that's the thing. There really are so many pieces that we want to go through it conceptually first because it, it's too much to consume, right? I, we, we've said the whole thing of drinking through a fire hose and that's about what this is like. So anyways, continuing with that, Let's talk about the domain layer itself. 
And it's the first D in the DDD. So the big part here is really what you're trying to do is you're trying to represent the concepts of the business. You're not trying to think in terms of software and how you typically write software, bags of properties and all this kind of stuff that gets you know pushed to a storage or something. You want to think about what the business needs are and more specifically the behaviors of the business. So when you say a, a domain layer, like what are some other kinds of layers? Like where does this fit into the whole scheme of things? Okay, so the domain layer, th- this would actually be a potentially a project in, in your solution, okay? So that would be your domain layer. You would have a UI layer. You would have an infrastructure layer. Uh, you would probably even have um, a domain service layer. You could have repository layer. Like The problem is it could grow out of control, right? But the domain layer is specific to this department you're looking at, right? Or this, this particular business case that you're working on. So you might have multiple domain layers. You might have one for your accounting department. You might have one for your shipping department. You might have one for your customer service. So that's, it's truly a layer that's going to contain your business entities for whatever that use case is. So, okay. So if I had a rule like, uh, like, uh, you know, refunds over $500 require manager approval, that's the kind of thinking and the kind of decisions that live in the domain model. Correct. And that would probably be when you're doing something like that, that would probably be in your customer service, uh, you know, business domain. Okay. So from the book itself, this is the layer that is responsible for representing concepts of the business, information about the business situation and business rules. Correct. And, and it's interesting because I think, I think the big thing that they pull out here is it, let's talk about what what these domain models are first. Is you can have a domain model, and we've seen them. It, sometimes they're kind of like DTOs that just have properties on them, and it's more about the state that you're transferring from one place to another. That's called an anemic domain model, and it's typically frowned upon in domain-driven design. What you want is you want the rich domain model, which focuses more on the behavior. It it's not that it doesn't care about the attributes and the properties, but those are there to facilitate the behavior of that model. So my first kind of thought there is uh, why not anemic models? Like if, if we keep things anemic, then we can reuse stuff more easily. So for example, like if you have rules around uh, say creating an order, then those rules might be different for like a customer service agent or a website or a user or, or, or something, you know, Ooh. um, yeah, go ahead. Yep. Sorry. So I was just saying, like, in, in in that case, I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate. Like, aren't I a little bit smaller to try and create these domain models that are uh, a little lighter weight? If we go back to, like, part of our conversation from last time in episode 58, we had talked about the, um, the possibility of having, like, a customer object or class, let's say, that was in multiple namespaces. And in each of those namespaces, it was relevant to that particular purpose, right? So uh, a customer object, as it would relate to a uh, customer service namespace, might have different functionality than a customer object that would relate to order fulfillment. Um, So there was a key word that I said there, and that was the functionality. And so the whole point is that in this case, we're trying to focus this on the behaviors we're not trying to focus on the attributes. If we focus on the attributes, then we're going to get caught up in like trying to pass around this massive 
object that's going to contain more than it's going to need a lot of the time. Right? Yep. That's perfect. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. So in that case, would we keep like our data model at a lower layer? It's in a different layer. So, so if you think about it, and this is actually the question that was asked, let me go up to episode 58. This is the exact question that was asked was, well, wait, what are you saying? Are you saying that you're going to have like almost duplicates of this? Like, what does this mean? How do you move this in and out of the data? And actually, I think it was Joe Recursion Joe who asked the question. Hold on one second. Let me find it. Yeah, so it was Joe Recursion Joe. So he he says this. I'm, I'm actually going to read this because I think this is incredibly valuable and it goes to your question. So could you elaborate on something? Using your example, if accounting calls someone a customer, then the UI would use the term customer ID and customer name. And the backend database would also use the term customer ID name when accessing the data. In another department in the organization, they called them user, but had to reference the same database. Then the UI for the second department would say user ID, username, but they're referencing customer ID and name in the data, which would make for some confusion, or am I not understanding it correctly? What what would you use a design pattern to transpose the customer to user? So here's the thing, and we'll be catching up to this in a future episode, but I want to go ahead and cover it now because it's very relevant to what you just said. There is a translation layer in domain-driven design. So let's see first. Thank you, blah, blah, blah. So yes. Okay. Um, the short answer is you have a translation layer called the anti-corruption layer in DDD terms. So basically what happens is this. You'll probably, if, if you're using an ORM, let's say, right, you know you have your database tables that have the word customer in them, Right you're probably going to have, let's say that you're using an entity framework or, or hibernate or whatever you're using in whatever language that you have, but you've got this mapping. So you got this customer that's going to have all the attributes that map to the table in your database or whatever your storage facility is. Now from your domain layer, you're going to have these anti-corruption things that will basically move data from your domain model into your data model. And vice versa. If you need to load up one of those things to bring it back into your domain to use somewhere, then it'll take it out of your data model, what whatever it was, and push it back into your domain model. So it's a translation layer is all it is. So, okay. So I think, so yes, you will get many of these things, right? Like depending on how many departments you have, you will likely have a translation layer for each one, Right. Assuming it doesn't map over one-to-one, which it probably shouldn't because the whole purpose of this domain-driven design is give people what they need, not anything more. Don't let them mess up the state of an object just because they have access to it, right? They, If they don't need your first name and your last name, all they need is your address to ship, then they shouldn't have access to your first name and your last name, right? It shouldn't be there. So in order to get that stuff, you might call your your repository. It will load up your data object, and then it will translate it over to your business object. Okay, I was trying to think of a. I'm trying to think of some examples uh, in the open source world where I might be able to see kind of some like real world code. Um, I'm not really having much luck though. So if uh, you're listening to this episode and you know an open source project that that kind of does this, then we'd love to see it. I was kind of thinking maybe Magento. It's kind of an open source like. CMSy kind of thing that also does some shopping and some other stuff. I thought that might be a good example, but 
Um, I don't know. Yeah. I'd love to see some. So here's an interesting thing. So I will say, and I want to plug the Pluralsight course on this because it, it was kind of an inspiration for the flow of this because they did a really good job laying it out. And I'm sure they spent a lot of time doing this. So the Pluralsight course with Julie Lehrman and Steve Smith, they go over this and they actually create an application. And, and if you are one of the, you know, I don't know what tier it is, but if you're a subscriber, you actually get access to the source code and you can take a look at it and see exactly how they did it. Another thing I want to point out is the book that we bought, the domain, domain driven design by Eric Evans. By Eric Evans, yes, yeah, literally just domain driven design. He even says when he's doing the book that he tried to purposely do applications that weren't perfect, to where you run into these difficult questions. So he, I believe he goes into a lot of detail and code in the book. We haven't actually gotten that deep into it yet, so I can't, I can't really say that much. But he did say in an interview that, you know, he wanted to do something that was more real to life to where you run into these problems that are like, oh man, what do you do here? And so it's not a perfect world scenario. So, so I would imagine that he's probably got some code that goes along with the book that might help demonstrate this as well. I'm thinking like Firefox, right? There's kind of only one domain user there. Like what, I, what I'm really looking for is like some sort of software that kind of caters to these different domains so, that, so I can kind of see the intermingling in one spot. Hmm. I don't know. We'll think about it. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to see if I can find something for that because it's, it's interesting. It, it, it definitely helps to be able to see this stuff too because, I mean, talking about it, I, I think hopefully we'll be able to portray the concepts, but it is definitely hard to get your head wrapped around all of it. Like when we go into onion architecture in the future, like unless you actually see that thing, it's it's hard to actually, you know, conceptualize all of it. Um, I'm tweet Eric Evans about it. There we go. Wish me luck. There we go. Hey, hey, maybe he'll come back and be like, check out this repo. Yeah. Um. So one of the other things here is this is not where you want to store the technical details necessarily of everything. So this is where I was saying that you don't want a bag of attributes on, on a class that belongs in your infrastructure layer. That's what's actually going to save to the database and do all that kind of stuff. This is literally where what you said, you want to focus on the functionality of whatever that, that model supposed to be doing. The behavior, the behavior, probably the better word that I should have used. What can you do? Not necessarily what, what are the attributes that belong to you? Right. So moving on. Okay, so this this brings us to one of the first topics of this. Well, just to illustrate that too, that that last statement that you made is that like, you know, what can you do, not how how do you do it or or what do you have in order to do it, but like uh, you know, an order object should be able to uh charge an order should be able to charge a payment mechanism. Yep. Right? But I don't need to know what data it has internally in order to make that happen. Correct. I don't want to care about that. Right. I just want to focus on on that behavior that it should be able to um, get paid. Yep. Totally. Um, yeah. It's and it's kind of foreign too, right? Like when you think about this, because a lot of applications that we've probably traditionally programmed in, you have this object that has all these properties on it. Well, let's go back to episode fifty-seven, and we were talking about like where do where do you start? Where do we where have we typically started first, right? And so often the case was like, okay, well, this is what the database looks like. So I'm going to create an object that represents a row in this table, and then I'm going to start building out from there. Yep. And so yeah, we're always thinking of like. 
oh, these are all the attributes that I have available to me at this time. Yep. And, and you know, the funny part is, and Joe, you'll remember this. You remember working on tax things with, with orders, oh. right? And it's funny because initially you're like, well, having all these properties here makes things easier. But as you mm-hmm. start getting deeper and deeper, it actually makes it so complicated because you have all these, well, if this, then this, if that, then this. And it, and it just turns into this mess to where you can't even make heads or tails of it anymore because all that data is being operated on in one place, right? Yeah, so much easier to just kind of have a separate system that does that and then you interact with that than trying to build all that stuff and if-thens around everything you've already got going. And that's perfect. What you just said is really the key is there's another system. There's this other business domain that handles this piece. You call that business domain and you say, I want you to calculate taxes, right? And it will do it. And and so you start breaking these things out into domains and it makes it easier for you to reason about your application. And actually, it helps you test it. It's like the whole thing we talked about with global variables in the past. You don't use them because you can't isolate their changes, Right. If you have these domains, you know exactly how that thing works. Well, this would be a service in domain-driven uh, design speak. Yeah. Right? So you might have a, a, a tax calculating service. Yep. Right? You pass in your objects, and then it would just give you back, here's the result. And it will use its own domain models to make that stuff happen. Yep. So, and you know, there's so much metadata. Like a lot of people think taxes, like you just kind of, you know, <laughs> ship the amount. But if you're doing it right, then you need to know things as like as far down as like um, the street address uh, for for the uh, order, and also um, you know what types of items like buttons aren't taxed in Pennsylvania. And you know, I mean, there's all sorts of crazy stuff. You start <laughs> you getting into value that? added tax international. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> And like we're scissors, I don't remember. Uh, they were last year. What about this year? I don't know. And, you know, all that stuff changes. So you have to know a huge amount of metadata. So it's so nice to be able to kind of keep that stuff separated. And so yeah, maybe a big part of domain is um, domain driven design is just recognizing those domains and uh, figuring out when to kind of intelligently break them apart into services and knowing when and how to share stuff. Yeah, it's like we said in the previous episode. If all you're doing is CRUD type operations, domain driven design is complete overkill. You don't need it. If all you need is something that's here's a form, update this in the database, this is totally out of the realm of anything you need to worry about. But if you need to worry about complex business needs, this is where this comes in. So, uh, one of the key parts of domain driven design in the domain layer are entities. And this whole part kind of messed my brain up a little bit when I first got into it. Not because of this one, but because of what they should contain and what you should strive to use. So an entity is basically an object that has an identity. So if you are coming from the database world, this is something to where you're going to have an ID in your database and you'll be able to look it up. That's like That's the easiest way that I can portray that to anybody is it something that you can you need to be able to reference by some sort of property somewhere or maybe set of properties that's an entity and it's mutable it can change it has state that can change over time and this is where things get a little bit crazy so uh did either of you guys ever mess with angular 1.3 just i did but yeah it was a long time ago there okay so one of the key <laughs> the funny thing I just said a funny statement a long time ago. 
But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was talking to someone just that the other day. Uh, I was talking about how long ago Angular One was, and I was like, "Wait a second!" As we speak, I'm RDP'd into like I think it was 2003, right? And it didn't seem that old, like that, you know. So it's just it's funny the different expectations you have for different types of technologies. Well, JavaScript does move at the speed of light, so that's Angular, not quite the same. So right? old. <laughs> yep. Um, Angular is like my grandfather's language. Oh, dude. Or framework. Well, what, what is it now? Angular 4 or 5? What, what's out? Is it 4? I thought we were on 17. Yeah, it might be. Didn't they drop the number? I don't it's like know. Angular yeah. 1, 2, 4, Angular. <laughs> An- uh, Angular 95? Oh, man. So, <laughs> Angular ME? It, one of the key things of Angular, and I think even if, if we're talking about MVC, is this whole idea of binding, right? And it's usually two-way binding. If you update the the UI, it'll go to the model. If you update the model, it'll go to the UI. And that all sounds awesome until you start getting this nest of things that you can't figure out what updated what and why it triggered something else to change. And it, it, it gets really confusing. And we've talked about why React.js is so sweet when used with something like Redux or Flux or one of those, is it's the single way flow of data. So it's very easy to reason about what's changing and what's happening. You can actually follow it. One of the same concepts applies to entities, and it comes to with associating entities. So think about in a order system, you have an order. Well, that order has a customer. Um, that order also has order items. When you go down to the order item, should you be able to reverse your way back up to the order? If you're at the customer, should you be able to reverse your way back up to the customer orders? So if you have this two-way flow, you greatly complicate your model. Because the navigational properties on it alone are going to be a bit of a pain to work with. And so one of the key elements that is talked about is, do you need that bidirectional flow? If you don't, don't build it in. Always start with a single-way flow. Start with whatever your top entity is, and then just associate it to the next one. Maybe buy an ID, right? And then that way you have a single-way navigation throughout and it kind of makes sense. It's more simple, or it's simpler, I should say, is the proper way to say that. It, I was thinking, like, um, it would kind of stink if you had, like, customers, and they each customer had a cart object for their current cart. But then if you, say, import a customer list or something, or import something from a new system, or something, somewhere where, like, carts just don't even make sense, now you've got this kind of dead weight hanging off. And so it makes it harder to reuse entities. And it's interesting because if you think about it again, from the ORM standpoint, a lot of times you can reverse navigate your way through things. That's not how you want to be thinking in your domain model. You want to be thinking about what do I need on this entity? If I need to just link up this other entity, then I can put an ID down there, but you don't necessarily, you might not need the person's name. You may not need their address. You may not need, you may not need any of that. You just need to know that it's that person. And so you might just keep that ID. So you really want to think about what do you need? Not what will you possibly want to use at some point? What do you need to make the behavior work? So that's one. And I already said, start with the with the one way associations. It, it it greatly simplifies things. And it makes sense, right? Like if you've only got one way to go. Yeah, as I was going through this, I had I had a note that was kind of similar to this where it was that DDD prefers unidirectional relationships. And and I wrote a note for myself, the uh was it the I don't know how to pronounce it, the Y N G N I. Um, oh Yagni. You ain't Yagni. gonna need yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You ain't gonna need it. Yep. Perfect. Does it prefer a direction? 
Up seems pretty awkward. Down. <laughs> well, yeah, I was down. just saying, like, inst- like prefer, you know, DDD prefers the interdirectional, and if you only went that way, you're probably not going to need the uh, bidirectional, and that, that's kind of why I wrote that note for myself. Yep. Uh-huh. But also I had some other notes here too that was kind of interesting as it related to entity objects. But now I'm like, you ever look back at some of your notes and you're like, why did I write that? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I was like, you know, I wrote that entity objects shouldn't have an equal operator. Oh. And I'm like, okay. okay yeah. That, okay. So, I do remember, but I don't remember. So it's interesting because the whole purpose of that is, and we'll get into this in value objects. We should bring it back up. Actually, we should make a note in the show notes for this. The reason is, is because an entity object has an ID. It has some sort of identifier. Right. So there should never be this notion of, is it equal? Right. You have a reference to what that object is. That's why you you should never have, does this equal this? Yeah. So is it okay to say, does this ID equal that ID? But at that point, yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess you could. Really what you're asking are these the two... are these the same reference is really all you should be asking, right? Well, it felt weird though, because like there was this, um, okay. So, cause, cause you kind of hinted on the value objects and we're definitely gonna be getting into value objects here more, but, um, in order to talk about entity objects, we do have to, at least at a cursory level, talk about the value objects. And so another one of the notes that I made was that it was an orchestrator of the, the, value objects but to say that the entity object um shouldn't have an equal operator my immediate response was like oh so that implies that the value object should yes 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 but you know i didn't see anything that like came out and clearly expressed that we'll we'll Um, hit that we'll hit that after the break here okay and then, but then I also had another note for myself that was like, you know, the entity object, the methods on the, on this thing are high level methods that read like, uh, use case level type communication. Yep. Right. Um, you know, so, so they're not very cryptic. Correct. It's so like order dot cancel. Is that a good one? Um, that I suppose could be one, you know, ship order. Fulfill order, you know, might be one, but it's not going to be. I'm trying to think what my cryptic one might be in relation to our e-commerce example here that we're going along with. Um, Maybe copy blank. order. Uh, so I imagine, like in code, what this code. might look like is the <laughs> <yeah>, hash code. <laughs> I would uh, I would ask the service. I would say something like, um, "Get me order." And I would pass it in ID right, and it gives me an order entity, and then I could say order.ship, right? Or order.cancel or order.clone. Oh, oh no, here's here's probably a legitimate one then. Like uh you know, I mean I mentioned the hash code one as an as a joke about like, you know, if you're if you were doing uh equal operators, but um I mean you probably wouldn't want you probably wouldn't need a method like get order ID. Right. Right? Cuz right. that that's not like a use case level type event, but uh you know, Fulfill order or ship order, like those are high level type communication. Do something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So before we do get into value objects, I do want to take a moment to ask you that if you haven't yet left us a review, 
We would super duper appreciate it if you would head to www.codingblocks.net slash review. And from there, you can find links to Stitcher and iTunes. And uh, please take the time to leave us a review. We will be forever grateful if you did that. And if you have already done it, we super appreciate you taking that time out of your busy day to do that. Uh, It really does put a smile on our face when we read those. And uh, so with that, let's take a let's take a brief break here and let's get into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. So the uh, I, I, I guess we should just call it like the, the coding blocks feud from now on. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so in our last survey, we asked, how cool is your company? And your choices were. Extremely cool. They pay for my conferences. Very cool. They give me time off for conferences. And lastly, they suck. I'm lucky if I get my time off approved. All right. So I'm going to pick one of you guys to go first. I think Joe went first last time, maybe. I don't remember. So I'm going to go with Alan. You get to go first this time. (sighs) I'm going to say very cool. Middle of the road. With thirty two point three five percent, thirty point two five percent, thirty two point oh thirty thirty two point three five percent. Oh my gosh, how could I mess that up? Thirty thirty two point three five. Well, let me write that down. Thank you for making my life complicated. Um, all right, Joe. All right, I'm looking right now. I'm trying to actually search uh, search Slack and see. <laughs> what Slack had to say about it? I've been kind of please. absent the last uh, couple of weeks. I was trying to so, log in and look at the poll. <laughs> so you're trying to cheat, is what you're saying? <laughs> I'm trying to research, right? Uh, yep, I'm gathering evidence. It's just like being uh, back in say, college. Uh, you're doing it the night of. That's no good. <laughs> I'm gonna say uh, what Alan said plus point oh oh one. Come on, man. Thirty-two point three five one I think uh, I can't. I can't imagine a conference uh, company not giving off time for conferences. I mean, it may eat up your PTO or something, but I, I imagine them being pretty happy with that as far as things go. Um, so uh, I'm going to say that with a forty percent. Wait, which one did you pick then? Because same one. Oh, you, cool. you literally picked the same one. Yeah, he just yep. he just upped me to forty percent. Ah, I'd like to change mine to one dollar, please. Really? Yes. I wish you guys would like make this more fun. You can't pick the same one, but we're both right, right. aren't we? <laughs> All right, so so extremely cool, very cool. Or they suck, and you're both picking very cool. Uh, Alan at thirty two point three five percent of the vote, and Joe at thirty two point three six percent of the vote. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. <laughs> uh, well, by Price's Right rules, you're both wrong. You both lose. Really? Did we go over? Really? Uh, you both went over. And that wasn't the most popular one either. Extremely cool. Wow, okay. Extremely cool That's wins the vote. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So we should so, do a conference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it it won it took forty percent. And actually, um, you guys were were extra wrong because very cool was the last. Ooh. Yeah. How bad was they suck? Uh thirty four and a half percent of the vote wow. for uh All right. Lucky to get your time off approved. Ouch, man. Well, there you know. There you go. If you're in the third that uh, can't get the time off, now you know like, there's a third out there that would love to send you to a conference. Yeah, there's so, another uh, place to be. Right. 
Yep. So get that resume polished up and link us in. Yeah. Wow. So with that, that takes us into our survey for this episode where we ask, what's your headphone style of choice while coding? And your choices are on ear, great sound in a compact shape or my preference over ear, sweet pillows of sound. Or in-ear, I need all the sound in my head. Or earbuds, because the pain is worth it. Pain? I feel like this is biased. Sweet pillows of sound, or because the pain is worth it? <laughs> well, what he's got on his head right now are truly sweet pillows. Oh, these are amazing. Look at them. But, but I will say... I'm sweating just looking. On the earbuds and the in-ears, let's just make sure we understand what these are. In-ears actually go in your ear canal... The earbuds, think back to the iPhone 3 days <laughs> where you got this big speaker that you kind of crammed into your ear and it just sort of sat there on the lip of it waiting to fall out. Those were earbuds. Those but you're wearing earbuds now, right? You've got like some sort of like kind of squishy something or other and it just kind of sticks in there. In-ear. <laughs> these are in-ears. So these go down in. So yeah, they've got the uh, they've got the little foam things on them. You squish them down. Real nice. We don't have we don't have in ear on the list though. We have on ear. No, in ear. No, we have the third one. Oh yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. In ear, that's an option. So that's the winner. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have any biases at this table here. Right. (laughs) Hey, earbuds are terrible. That's the worst. They are they're horrible, man. So so I do have like one a uh, little wrench to throw into the works here, though. Uh-oh. A new thing that I that I heard about, and I don't know if you guys have heard this yet, but have you heard of? So, so we're playing this based off of like the old Family Feud style kind of thing, right? Um, I heard of this new thing called Google Feud. Have you heard about this? No, but that's exciting. So, so we're gonna play a quick game of it. Okay. <laughs> and, oh boy. And. Instead of instead of it being like the old school, you know, like we asked a hundred, uh, we surveyed a hundred people, and these are the top choices. Um, I'm going to give you a statement, and you're going to try to guess the top uh, search results that that are suggestions that Google's coming back with as you're typing it. Can we keep Ooh, it okay? PG-13? So you can't type it. So hands off the keyboard. Okay. Okay. Hands off the keyboard. Let's see some hands there. Hands, hands up. Hands, hands up. Hands. All right, so programming is, and give me what you think the top choice is going to be. Oh, man. Uh, do, do we have to buzz in? Oh. No, you can each just <laughs> give me your, your own choice. You said hard? Yep. Wow, I'm having a blank. Uh Yeah. <laughs> Programming is fun. Okay. Well, Al- Alan, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but Joe won. <laughs> Yay. Was that number one? I was number, number one two. choice is is All hard. Right. Number two is is fun. Programming yeah. is easy is the third one, and then programming is too hard is the fourth choice. <laughs> Man. Well, programming is easy. What jerk said that? <laughs> Somebody who does It must program. be true. Google came back like, as the really third a, result. It um, really, really is hard. Do we actually have to finish? So I kind of want to play this game some more. <laughs> 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 okay, let's see. Let's, let's do... Um, okay, wait a bit. How about if I say... Singletons? 
<laughs> Anti-pattern. Okay, fine. We'll, we'll, oh, yeah, that's not going to be fair. That's what it's going to be. No, I haven't done it. I bet that I haven't typed it. But you know he's going to know it, though. Did you do uh, it? Every once in a while, I just, I just do the search just to laugh. Actually, I don't think any one of us would have got this. All right, fine. Uh, so pick something else because I just... Uh, oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, I did. I could Okay. Um, let me think here. Let's say... How Design about, patterns. Okay. I Solid principles. That one, but all right, fine. Big O notation. All right. So, design patterns are what do you think the number one suggestion from Google? Hard. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> Easy. I feel like that's his. <laughs> you guys are just reusing your answers from before, huh? Bad. Bad Ooh. is the number one. Is bad. Wow. Missing language features are number the number two suggestion, and overrated is the third. Wow, that's a good one. Wow. All right. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So what about the uh, DDD domain driven development. Oh man, what? don't don't do that to me. We're in this episode. What if it comes back something bad? And I'm like, oh, man. We uh, it comes back with something slightly unexpected. Let's say overkill. Well, I mean, now yeah, we can't because you already did it. No. I can do another one. No. Yeah, <laughs> what's another Complicated. one? <laughs> Actually, we should move on. <laughs> All right, now I want to see. It. <laughs> now I really want to know. Jeez. Well, I thinking mean, like, like programmers. All right. So, well, the the, the other one that I was going to go with, just as a as a joke, because you know sometimes we've joked about picking on other languages, right? So, I was going to pick something like, uh, you know, JavaScript or Java. Ooh. So, which one? Which one of those languages would you like me to? JavaScript. JavaScript. Okay. So, JavaScript is. What do you think? I, I'll go ahead and tell you, n- you're, neither of you are going to get this. I was going to say everywhere. Is everywhere? All right. That's a good one. Joe? Sorry, I, I've been looking at <laughs> the complicated stuff you guys are talking about. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> JavaScript is... In our Google feud. Oh, d- JavaScript is... Terrible. <laughs> oh, come on, man. Show some love. Ah. I, I, it's, it's probably the thing I spend the most time with. Uh, so obviously I don't hate it, but I hate it. Yeah, you would have never gotten this one. The top result is, is array. And it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Is it an array? Man, all right. <laughs> that about sums up my experiences with it. Yeah, like <laughs> the, the, the top three for JavaScript are really awful. Is array, is neuro, numeric, easy for me to say. Is null. Yeah, is Nan. Is Nan. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh, man. All, All right. right. Well, that'll be fun. That That is fun. I like that. That needs to be another part of the show. Until, <laughs> until everybody's like, man, you guys need to cut that out. But You play too many games. Right. All right. So on to what we alluded to a minute ago, value objects. This is the part that messed me up. Is basically... What it is, is it's an object that measures, quantifies, or describes a thing in the domain. 
Its identity is the composition of its values. It does not carry an identity field. It has, you can't reference it. You can't look it up anywhere. It doesn't exist like that. And it's immutable. You can't change it. You throw it away. If you change it, it's a new object. That's all there is to it. And the equality thing that you brought up earlier, the way that you do it is you compare all its values. And that kind of makes sense because the whole purpose of a value object is it's only a value object because it's composed of certain properties or values. And it can't okay, have... So, go ahead. The last thing, it can't have side effects. Okay, I was going to throw out some examples. Like, I, I initially thought money. I see that one's in the list here as, like, a good example. Um, I was also thinking, like, if you've got, like, a temperature or something, then you might want to bound that, like, you know, into... You know, you don't want to allow temperatures of 3,000 or something. And you also want to say, like, you know, 100 is equal to 100.1 or, or something. But those aren't composite. No, they are. Uh, they are. That's perfect. So a temperature. So the reason why money matters is because if you say I have fifty thousand, what do you have fifty thousand mm-hmm. of? Ruples, dollars, cents. Like they're okay. all completely different meanings without the unit. Same thing with a temperature. It's fifteen degrees outside. Well, if what are you talking about? Celsius, Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. Kelvin, like. So you actually need like even even a, a Scoville right on a on a temperature scale for foods. So there's there's so many different things that the value object itself only has meaning when you combine all those properties. So 100 degrees Fahrenheit is way different than 100 degrees Celsius, right? Those are that would be a value object. Now here's the interesting thing: a value object. Like a temperature one, you could add a method to it saying uh, convert to, and then you could tell it the type that you want to convert it to. So if it was stored in Fahrenheit, then maybe you convert it to Celsius or centigrade or whatever you want to call it. So so that's what a value object brings you. It's immutable. Once you set something to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, that is the value of that thing. If you want to change it to 99, it's no longer the same object. You toss that old one, you create a new one. So if you think about it, like uh, let's say that let's say that a house is your is your class, right? You have a house. You have an inside temperature is a type of temperature value object. Then you have an outside temperature that would be an outside temperature value object, right? It's using a temperature value object, but you can store those two things, and on their own. You know, they don't have an identity. You can't go look it up in the database, say, hey, give me where ID temperature was this, right? It's not like that. It was stored on your house object. Okay. So the one thing that I kept, okay, so, so, okay, (laughs) where to start? I, I understand conceptually where they were going with this, right? Like what, what the, um, the idea was here, right? And and some some examples of value objects. But when I was trying to relate this back to a real world, and you mentioned like money being a great example, I'm like, okay, yeah, I see your point about that being a value object. Now, tell me the last time in an e-commerce system, for example, where you created a whole separate type for money, and you didn't just use like a double. And that's the problem. So right, it, it is the problem, and that's why this totally just messed with my mind because I was because what they say 
and let's back into it. What they say is you should prefer value objects over entities. When you can compose all your entities of nothing but value objects, if you could do that. And so backing into this, let's go back to that tax example that we talked about. Dude, there were so many things that were frustrating because like you said, sometimes it mattered about the zip. Sometimes it mattered about the product. Sometimes it mattered about whatever. If you weren't using US dollars, if you didn't have that specified and you were shipping overseas, now all of a sudden your logic was really dirty, right? Because you had to say, oh, well, this was 50 US dollars, even though you might not have specified it properly, like because it was two different fields on in, in your class, right? You would have some sort of if statement. Hey, if this was in US dollars, then do this calculation. If it was in Australian, do this calculation. So you get into that whole world of things. If you have a value object that has those things in it, you can control all those things in one spot. You're no longer doing all these if, if scenarios. You could literally kind of put it in one place for it to be done. So the key is your money has no value without its unit. It doesn't mean anything. Saying 100000 I want 100000 I just want to put this out there. If your money has no value, you can hand it to me. <laughs> I'll, I'll just, I'm, I'll hold it for you. Well, people probably would have done that with Bitcoins a long time ago. Uh, yeah. 2000 Each one, 2000 2000 now? Yeah, when I bought mine, they were 40 How I many? sold them. You sold them? Man, yeah, I remember you hundred. buying those. I remember talking to you about it years ago. Yeah. That's why it's so sad. I know. Should have should have hung on, dude. You'd have been worth um, millions. So I got a, I got an idea for uh, for a, a value object here that's kind of bigger. A box, a box can have a weight, it can have a length and a width, and a, say if you're an Amazon or something like that, then you've got all these values that are immutable. They don't change, um, and you can say, you know, are these two boxes the same and you say, well, are they the same size or the same weight? Are they the same, you know, say strength of cardboard? Oh, that's that's true. That's a great, great, great analogy. You don't care about that particular box. You care about the the properties of the box, right? You're not going to go look it up and say, I need box ID one, two, three, four, five, right? That's not it. You want, I want a box that's 12 inches long by 12 inches wide by 12 inches tall and is, you know, built of whatever strength cardboard. Which, by yep. the way, there's a great podcast episode on that if you guys haven't heard of it. Have you ever heard of no. it? Uh, oh, man. Oh, come on. What's the... Uh, I'm going to have to look it up. Hey, I was going to say, this is the part where he asks us the name of the title of the <laughs> podcast he's trying to remember. Man, uh, Surprisingly Awesome. Surprisingly Awesome is the name of the podcast. They have one on Cardboard. The episode was surprisingly awesome. Like, I didn't know that I could care that much about cardboard. It was amazing. Wow. Um, So, at any rate, yes, that's a perfect example of something that is not an entity. You never need to look it up. You never need to be able to change it over time. It is an immutable object that you can have thousands of them, right? And you can compare them by saying, hey, if you can hash these values, right, get hash code on the entire object, does it match this hash code? Well, it's the same thing. It's the same box. Okay. And another idea too is that we've mostly talked about custom value objects, but they don't have to be custom, right? Like an integer is a value object or a decimal or a, you know, um, these are simple values that you can compare. They're immutable. You know, you can say does four equal four. Um, so I think I understand what you're saying. So let's say that if you wanted 
the range was something that you mentioned earlier. Let's say that you had a number. I, I don't know. Maybe it was a, a score, you know, like a grade on a paper, right? It's yep. bounded. You have zero and a hundred. That could be a value object, right? Like you have a bounded range, a, a score or something. So the properties are, this is your value, and these are the ranges you have to stay within. So that, that could be your value object. So it has to ha- it has to be bounded in order to be considered a no, value. No, no, just uh, I'm saying if you wanted to use a simple thing like an integer as what your thing is, there has to be a reason. It, just saying something's an integer doesn't really make it a value object. It's not an object. It's just it, yeah, it's but a property. value object in the in the way that it's being used in uh, DDD though, integer wouldn't count. Because right, you can change the value of the integer. Right, it, integer well, on you its can't own. change a four into a three. You can set whatever variable. Well, but whatever that variable is, though, yeah, but w- but that's the same variable, though, versus if you changed a string, you're actually getting back a point or two, a new piece of memory. I, I guess the point is, though, an integer on its own isn't an object. It's not, it's not, it's not inherently anything that has any kind of value to it, right? Like, the, there's no collection of properties that make this thing up. So I think that's probably really the point is it's two or more things that that compose this value. I I think from I mean, I guess the point I was trying to make is don't confuse like in in past episodes we've talked about like reference objects versus value objects and, and let's not confuse that terminology here when we talk about value objects in the world of domain driven design. Right, it's not a function okay. of the language. It's it's a function of what it is. Like you can't change you can't change a temperature from 100 to 99. It's a new temperature, right? So I, I think that's kind of yeah. what they're getting at. Like you can never, like you can't change the value of the number 19. Well, right? no, no, no. let's you get can away change from something. the number examples because that, that's getting weird. Let's go back okay. to your box example. I can't make this box a bigger box. It either is big or it's not. If I right. need a new box that is bigger, I have to get a new object. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, so I can have I can have an object that points to a box, and if I need a bigger box, it's a whole different object. Right, you replace it with that new bigger right. box. Right, I had to physically replace the box. Yep. So a value object is typically just just so that we're on the same page here. It's typically going to be an object type. So let's say that you have a class house. You have uh, no. Let's do let's do Amazon. You're shipping, right? You you have a shipment. And then on that shipment, there's going to be a box where things are going to get packed into. So you might have a, a property on that shipment class. It's like, you know, shipment box. And then it's going to have a value object with the length, width, height, you know, strength, all that kind of stuff. That's it. It's literally, it's almost the whole composition approach of, of designing a class. So if you do need a new box, you're going to throw away that old one and replace it with a new one. Okay. So let's skip into services. We kind of hinted on this before, but these are like, these are the core of your application, right? So we talked about like a tax as an example, a tax service as an example of it, right? Like being able to properly tax, like anyone in the accounting department of your company is going to agree like, you know, if you're not taxing correctly, then, you know, you're up the creek, right? So that's a core part of your business, right? Yep. Yep. It's another layer. 
right? It interacts with your domain. So like you said, tax.chargetax or, or, or tax service dot, you know, charge taxes for order will then know how to interact with the proper domain entities or models or whatever it is and carry out those. And that's, that's going back to that whole layer thing that you were talking about earlier, where you're going to have your infrastructure, your domain services, your domain models, all that. So it's another slice in there that typically is going to be more than likely if you're doing it properly, it's probably going to be a bunch of interfaces and get injected through, you know, some sort of IOC type thing. So that's generally what you're going to do. So the, these are, this is functionality that isn't a part of your entity objects or, well, value objects wouldn't have any, um, any functionality. So they're just not a part of your entity objects. Right. It might even need to interact with multiple entities. And so it doesn't really belong on one entity, I think is really what it boils down to, is if it doesn't fit neatly in one of your domain entity objects, then then you probably move it out into a service. Although we're get, we're not getting into it this show, but that'll bring up the topic of aggregate roots in the next one. And and that brings in a whole nother layer of, oh, well, this is where you do a lot of things. So, but yeah, generally speaking, if it doesn't fit well on the domain model itself, then you probably extract it out into a service. So these are these are stateless. This is where you can get into functional programming within your application, right? So you could have you could these are just stateless parts. There's no side effects on it. It's just going to like calculate something or do some action and then you know whatever you requested and then you know come back it's not modifying your entity well no it can it can have side effects the service itself is stateless but it can totally have side effects on whatever it's interacting with okay so it can modify yeah it can modify but it itself is stateless the service will have no properties you can reference anymore but but it can totally jack up any properties on what it's using. Well, this is what I was thinking of is like uh, an example, and, may, and maybe this is where I got messed up in my head when I said that. Then was that uh, like logging as an example of a of a service that might be in your application. It's core to your application being able to log things properly. Uh, maybe there's like customer sensitive information. We keep talking about you know e commerce examples. Maybe there there's you know, sensitive information that you don't want logged. Or maybe the way in which you log it, or the place that you log it, like that—that's core. Especially if you're trying to debug any problems, or uh, for auditing purposes, you know that you might have some reasons there. But it's not specific to like a line item on an order. But or you got to be careful. Object. You got to be careful. So that actually falls into a different aspect of domain-driven design, or or a different layer, I should say. That's usually in your infrastructure layer, because. This is where there's you're not really. Yeah, but taking, this is a service in the infrastructure layer. Yeah, you're right. The the logging would be. Yeah, but a domain service would be something like place order or you know do do something like that. It's a behavioral type thing as opposed to a system type. You know, you're trying to deal with storage. You're trying to get information out over here and put it on disk somewhere. So there there is a difference. One is based off the business behavior, and the other is based off what your software needs are, and that that's your infrastructure. Well, what I'm saying is like there's services across these layers, though, right? Like there's not. It's not like there's just domain service, and that's the only one. No, correct. That correct. matters. There there's other services 
across the layers and in infrastructure is one of the layers. Like one of yes. Them. Yeah. Yes. And that's where your logging would probably go. So because that's what's going to be interacting with, is it logging to disk? Is it logging to a database? Is it logging to Azure, AWS, whatever the case may be? And that's why, so again, that's why those are typically interfaces, right? So in your domain layer, let's say that you did need to log something, whether it be through an aspect or you just baked it in, it's going to use an iLogging you know, service that's going to be your infrastructure layer that probably gets injected in and then it will it will log wherever it, it is set up to go. Mm-hmm. So I know it gets complicated talking about things and that's why domain-driven design isn't for a CRUD application. This is when you start getting into enterprise type level of, of things, right? Like it, it can get complicated in terms of how it's laid out, but it simplifies your programming and makes it more maintainable over time. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, there are definitely some complication there. (laughs) Um, Well, so with that, uh, we have reached the end of that topic, at least for tonight's purposes, but uh, we will have plenty of links uh, for resources that we like related to this topic. Um, so we will include some links to Pluralsight. There's some great, uh, courses out there, um, on this topic as well. We'll have a link to the book and then there's the community around DDD as well in, uh, ddcommunity.org and domainlanguage.com, uh, which are both great resources as it relates to this topic. And now... Yeah, so let's get into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Hi, and I'm up here. I'm staying awake. You may be on your morning commute, but it's like 10 o'clock at night here. I'm fading. It's 11, Uh, dude. (laughs) Oh, yeah, terrible. Tell me about it. (laughs) Oh, my God. So this week I'm I'm stealing a a tip idea from uh, Hube Dave. I hope I said that right on Twitter. And um, he ran into a problem with a project he was working on and uh, said something about Twitter on it. And um, I just kind of clicked the link, just kind of looking. And I noticed that he had his code on GitHub and uh, he had a ticket for it that kind of described the issue. And it even said like uh, it had a tag for help wanted. It's like, it made it so easy for me to like, clone. it's like the clone button's right there. So like, a lot of times we get um, emails or tweets or, or people asking for help and they start to kind of de- describe the problem. And it's so hard to even just figure out what the problem is because they, f- they kind of take things for granted. They have to explain what the app is doing. There's all this weird stuff. They can't really share the code. And a lot of times, you know, if it's a business thing, you can't, but um, my tip uh, was basically like, if you're going to um, ask for help on something and that could even be, you know, literally getting contributors for your project then make it easy, put your code somewhere where people can see it create a readme with instructions on how to build and run it. And even if it's trivial, you know, you think you can just kind of download the project and build it and it's obvious. If it's so trivial, then just write it up, you know, make it dead simple and create a little ticket in there. You know, have something that you can show people that, um, you know, give them an example and make it easier to get people to help you. And so I thought that was really clever and really smart of him to, uh, to kind of have all that stuff and make it easier for other people to see his code and see his project. He's even got a screenshot in the readme, which is fantastic for showing people exactly what it is because what you may think is like a clear name for your project. Isn't necessarily what other people might be um, expecting. 
And so by you know having all that information there, boom, on one click, it's so much easier to to get uh, helper contributors. Did you help? Uh, I tried to, but uh, <laughs> I was I had a, a hard time reproducing the problem. So actually, I want to take another stab at it. So, if I may, I want to reward reword Joe's tip of the week because I loved his tip of the week. If you want Joe to help you with your code, <laughs> <laughs> this is from the uh, you know the, the the developer mind that's already been like you know you know that's tired, burnt out, or whatever. So, if you want Joe to help you with your code. Put this stuff up on GitHub. Send me a README with detailed instructions on the problem and how to run it and how to build it. And then send me a, a ticket to the issue that needs to be fixed. And then Joe will sit, fix it. That's what it if sounds like. If you send me saying. a ticket for something, I can't help but try and close it. <laughs> like I have been spent so much of my life, you I know, like closing tickets. That yeah, if you send me a ticket, or like uh, even just knowing that there's a bug, it's something like hmm, there's a bug and I'm not sure. Like I can't help it all. I'm instantly like. Uh, you know, cancel the plans for tonight, honey. <laughs> There's Dude. a bug on the internet. <laughs> Look, the sad part is he's not kidding, guys. I, uh, he really isn't. Joe is the eternal helper. He, he can't. Yeah, it pains my soul. That, that's yeah, what. Can, that's what I'm saying. That's what I love about this tip of the week is that the tip of the week is how to have Joe help you. <laughs> Just like Pavlov in response, like, "Hey, I signed you a ticket." We're like, "Oh crap, let me get on it." <laughs> <laughs> it could be literally midnight on Saturday, <laughs> and he's like, I- "I'm heading back home." Hold on one second. I marked yep. the issue in my private GitHub repository is critical, so I need you to jump on it like right now, man. Yeah, I-, I promise you. Uh, hey, hey. So, I before I get him on a tip of the week, I actually wanted to give a shout out. I, I met this guy at at a meetup recently, and he's awesome, Mike F. Robbins. If you go to mikefrobbins.com. He's kind of known as Mr. PowerShell. This dude is off the charts good at what he does. I didn't even know. I'm sure you guys probably did because I never really messed with PowerShell that much. I didn't even know there was like a grid that you could have pop up out of a PowerShell command. Like this was news to me because he he actually did something to where he, he took our feed from our podcast and had it list out all the sessions. And, and, and it it literally popped up a grid and it's like a couple of lines long. So anyways, if you ever have any kind of automation or anything that you need to do and you have a question on PowerShell, go to mikefrobbins.com and check him out. The dude is, he's, he's a super nice guy and just constantly writing useful stuff and giving it away for free. So, you know, go check that out. We'll have it in the show notes. And now that I am getting back around to what I was originally going to say, um, I go I go off topic sometimes. Uh, so my tip of the week is it's called Remarkable, and it's an NPM package that you can load up in your JavaScript projects or in, any kind of JavaScript thing, whether it's Node.js or if you're using something like uh, React. This is actually where I found out about it, uh, is you can actually use markup and it will render the HTML for you. So if you're doing something like uh, React and you do a render and you put some markup in there, it will convert it for you to your actual HTML. And I thought that was really cool to be able to use it in your code. So it's kind of like, I guess, like a Jade template type thing. It, you know, you could just basically call this this remarkable.render and it'll do the thing for you. So Very nice. you're wanting to use markup for your actual HTML. 
It's kind of cool. I don't know that I would yeah. typically, but yeah, you know. But that's what you're describing. That's what you're doing, yeah. You can use your markup and it'll write the HTML for you. So now we've decided really that like HTML that. was too much effort. Pretty much. Wait, wait. Well, think about it um, in some other ways. Like you can like take some notes and mark down or like do some formatting, say, and, and then uh, convert that to the HTML and drop it into an email or into a wiki or some other format. So it's not necessarily just for making web pages. Like there's all sorts of places where you can drop HTML. Yeah, I, I, it's just, it's so neat. It, it reminded me of like Jade templating and that kind of stuff, it, you know, where they have their own language where you do it, except this is a well-defined language that wasn't made up that people use all over the place. And it was just like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. I guess, I, I mean, uh, I love systems that I can like add Markdown to and then it'll render it pretty, yeah. right? Ooh. And and you know GitHub is one, Visual Studio Team Service is another one where like you can include like a readme.md or something like that, and it'll it'll uh, you know do a pretty print on it, right? But I never thought about oh I should just like always use Markdown even for things that I actually want to be HTML. <laughs> <Right>? mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean I don't even know what all use cases we might come up with, but it's kind of cool that there's a little library out there that you can that you can use. Yeah. And it's got some cool features too. Like uh, I noticed it's got um, some rules that you can kind of enable or disable, like linkify. So you don't have to do the stupid markdown links, which is so uh, arduous to type. Well, I got to say, Alan, that is remarkable. That is remarkable. And with that, (laughs) we'll go into my tip of the week, uh, which is uh, we've talked about a lot of these sites like – like some of the regex sites, you know, where you could fiddle your regex. Um, and this one isn't quite like that, but if you ever found yourself in a case where you get a blob of JSON, you're like, man, I just want to see this thing in like a human readable form, head over to jsonformatter.org and you can dump that JSON into uh, the left-hand pane there and then click on format or beautify and it'll pretty print it over onto the right. Not quite in your pretty printing if it's your Markdown uh, Remarkable uh, package did, but you can put it into a human-readable format there, and you can validate it, and you can, uh, if you wanted to go the other direction and you wanted to like take something that was already pretty and you wanted to minify it, you could do that. If you wanted to take that JSON and you want to like convert it to XML, you could do that. You could do it to uh, CSV or YAML. So... I thought that was a pretty neat little tip because I always find myself what my pattern has been in a situation like this is I'll take that JSON that I want to format. I go into sublime and then I paste it and then I'm like, okay, what was the stupid command in sublime again? I always forget. Control shift P. Oh yeah. Wait a minute. No, I got to like select it all. Okay. Then I got to go. No, no. I said control shift P. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or control shift P, but that's going to depend on too, like which package you have installed. Yeah. Dude, so, this thing is picky though. Like you can't just put uh without the uh without the quotes. So like if you open up an object and just type like I did this is ugly colon one. Like oh, yeah. you can't say uh format beautify. Like it's like oh you expected a string because you can't have a property that's not inside a string uh a literal. And it has to be double quotes, I think, too. Yeah, dude. Uh, like this is the yeah. strict JSON uh is there like a strict option you can turn off? This is like stressing me out. All right, fine then. <laughs> fine, be that way. I got another one for you then. You're going to be like that. So then, uh, hold on. 
See, I like this. You get two tips because I poo-pooed on this one. Although it looks like a cool tool. <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's why we can't have nice things, Alan. Matt, like seriously, why are they doing this? Like, yeah, they need like a Jason to Jason button. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. No, hold on, hold on. I take it back. I take it back. Hold on a second. So check it out. Check it out. If you, so if you do this, there's a button right above the text area. The far, it's it's on the left side, but the right one, it's compact JSON, remove all white spaces, etc. It will actually stringify it for you. Wait, Life, life is good. Which one are you talking about? So there's two buttons <laughs> just above the text area. The one on the right, it says compact or whatever. Actually, the one on the left might do it too. The one on yeah, the left does it too. Yeah. Formatting it. Yeah. No, no. It'll add the strings to it so that when you click format beautify, it'll actually fix it for you. I'd have to see. What yeah, that's really nice. It's, I don't know if that's intended. <laughs> it almost seems like a bug, but I like it. <laughs> it. It makes it usable. Um. So yeah, if you if you just do a little object and you know give it, it doesn't even matter what you call the property. You can call it name if you want, but don't put it in quotes. And then you know put your name in there, and then you know close the thing. And then if you just hit format beautify, it's going to throw an error saying, "Hey, it was expecting a string." However, if you come over here and hit this button, it'll add the strings in there for you, and then you can format and beautify it. Does that make any sense? Oh, I th- I see what you're saying. On the you had to hit the button on the left hand pane though. Yes. So basically, what he's describing is in each pane. Okay, so picture picture the page is divided into half, and down the middle of the the divider is all the action buttons for like minifying and formatting and things like that. But on each of the panes. On the sides there, there's two buttons at the top, one of them where you can see uh, some lines that look like they're in, indented, and then another set, the the lines on the second button where everything's just concatenated together. There's no spacing. And you're describing that if you typed in, um, if you just created an object with, like, let's say you created a... Um, open curly brace, person, colon, one, close curly brace, and then you try to click on format, beautify, then you get the error. But if in your left-hand pane you click on that first button where it shows the JSON formatted, then it would go ahead and put person in quotes, then you could click on the format, beautify, exactly. and it works, which kind of feels like it defeats the purpose, but whatever. No, well, I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it almost sort of formats it on the left for you. Right, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But but when you do that, you do get these other features here, this JSON to XML, the CSV, the YAML. So there's a lot of other features you get if you do that. So, But, but okay, this is a useful tool. I, I no longer poo-poo on it. Um, well, thank you for that strong <laughs> this odor is, of recommendation. This is risen above the poo-pooing. It is, it is an excellent tool. I was going well, okay. So, so there's another one then just because <laughs> of Alan's poo-poo. Uh, yes. You could head to jsonformatter.curiousconcept.com and, uh, put that you know, open curly brace, person, colon, one, close curly brace. And on the right-hand side there, you'll see a JSON standard, and one of the options is do not validate. Ooh, yeah, and then you can click process, and it'll it'll show you. And, like, every attempt that you try to process, it'll show you all of your uh, – it'll keep, like, a running tally of, like, oh, here's where you tried it, and it didn't work, and here's where you tried it again, and it didn't work. I like this. So that one, uh, just a little shout-out here, was uh, – 
a tip that I heard complete developer uh, pass out the um, JSON formatter.curiousconcept.com. Very nice. Oh, very nice. And this one even has collapsing in it, so you can collapse different levels. Yeah, it's pretty. I like it. I thought the other one did too, though. It might have. I was so. Oh, no, maybe it didn't. Oh, yeah, no, no, it did. The other one had collapsing too. It's just that the formatting of it looks more like what you would see inside of an IDE, like a WebStorm or a Visual Studio, oh, where it's yeah. by the, the line count. The yep. curious concept doesn't include line numbers in the formatting of it, but it does have like this pretty little CSS, you know, plus minus uh, bit. Both nice looking tools. Yep. Yeah, and we'll have links in the show notes. Shall. To so, two uh, things I think that, since uh, Alan had to poo-poo on them. I did. I did. I unpoo-pooed. <laughs> I unpoo-pooed them. Well, now, now that we've unpoo-pooed. <laughs> hey, uh, thanks for listening. Today we talked about the D in uh, domain design in uh, DDD. And uh, we were talking about software architecture, domain-driven development, domain layers, models, entities, value objects, and domain services. So hope you enjoyed. Yes. Say that fast three times. I, I could barely say it the first time. <laughs> can you hear me rubbing my eyes? And <laughs> I can see it. I'm surprised you're still, like, you've kind of propped yourself up this entire time. I am a morning person. Uh, yes. Proud of it. <laughs> well, so with that, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Uh, be sure to leave us a review by heading to www.codingblocks.net slash review. And, you know, we say check out Stitcher. Hopefully it's back up by the time you've got this. Uh, while you're up there at the site, check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And it's still down. Uh, send your feedback, questions, and rants to the Slack channel, codingblocks.slack.com. And uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net and find all our social links at the top of the page. What the hell was that? <laughs> is that not the... That was, oh, no, that's not that one, is it? <laughs> no, please make that noise again. <laughs> Wait, wait, you don't know that song? What no, was that? Nano, nano. <laughs> yeah, I'm bad to the bone. <laughs> bad. Oh, man. Oh, totally going into the episode. <laughs> bad. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, okay. <laughs>